Um, hey, I'm glad you're here. Let's just start with that. I'm glad you're here because I know for some of you, it just it takes work just to, to make it each week. Um, ushers, are you guys ready? If not, we can do this later. All right. Our ushers are going to come forward now and receive our tithes and offerings. Thank you, Wes. We go ahead and pray for our offering. Father God, we thank you for just the overwhelming, just continual blessings you've given our life. The blessing of your presence, financial provision, the things that we see and the things that we don't. God, as we offer back a portion of what is really all yours, may we do it with an open heart and an open hand. Never with conditions on it, but always just to say, I freely give, I freely give. God, may that be our heart in your name. Amen. Hey, if you're, uh, if you're visiting with us today, again, I want to welcome you and just let you know, I would love to get to know you. Some of you I know, some of you I don't. Almost forgot to dismiss. Uh, my middle school and high school kids can go ahead and go to their class. I don't want to keep you guys here. But I am glad you're here. As uh, we mentioned earlier, we do have um, a night of worship and baptisms is coming up. We have three people that have already talked to me, which is exciting. I'm glad to have some people that uh, want to get baptized. If you've never been baptized or you were only baptized maybe as an infant and now you have a better grasp and understanding of what you're saying, I would welcome you to talk with me, to join us. If you say, hey, I work Friday night, I'll figure something else out. Maybe we'll just keep it here from Friday through Sunday. And if somebody wants to be baptized on Sunday, some people have said, well, don't you have a class? Or don't you? I, I always go with the account in Acts where they're riding along. He was witnessing. He leads a guy to the Lord. And the guy looks and says, well, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Hmm, boy, that's true. So, again, it's not that I don't value the meaning and significance of baptism, it's that I don't want to put obstacles in anyone's faith. I want to eliminate the obstacles and say, there's room for all of us at the table. Let's come together over what is our commonality, not find what we can disagree on. Because if you're looking to disagree with me, oh, there's plenty. Not just like biblically, just I'm a controversial guy. But... Uh, if you're interested in being baptized, just let me know. And again, I always do an open call that night. It's just if you plan ahead, you can actually like have a towel there and some clothes to change into. But if you're like, no, I don't plan anything. I just live in the moment. Then come on out. I'll still baptize you. Many times when I've done baptisms, there's been people who go, oh, yeah, I'll be baptized. All right, let's do this. But uh, if you know you're interested, come talk to me. I'd love to just talk with you more about that. And why we do it and what it means and the significance of it in the life of a believer. So that's my, my pitch on baptism. Today I start a new series, those of you who get my weekly email and read it. Um, hey, we don't know who reads it, but we know what percentage of people do. Don't think we don't. But uh, you know that we're starting a series on the Ten Commandments. And when I originally did this series, I actually originally did 11 weeks, then I stretched it to 12, then I stretched it to 13, and then I decided, you know what, I'm going to compress it back down. So I think I've got it back to 10 weeks, so I'm going to have to lump a couple of commandments together. But it's okay, and I'm going to tell you why it's okay that I lump some of them together. I'm going to justify my actions. So let me give you a little history first. Some of you 
You may know the Ten Commandments, but you may not know what they actually say. I've had people once that I was talking about the Ten Commandments and I had a student raise his hand and go, hey, I saw those in a building. And he had to proceed to tell me about how he'd seen them. I was like, all right, so you've seen them once. Now let's learn how to live them out. So you do need to know a little bit of, uh, of history. Uh, originally, they're, they're actually known as the Decalogue, in case you were wondering what the official name was, which actually technically means, if you break it down, 10 words. So each word it isn't literally a word. It's 10 things, 10 words for you to live by. They were given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai. They were written um, for two purposes. They're both a code of ethics and a path of how we worship God. Not specifically the musical side, but this is what a life of worship is going to look like if you live this way. So it is dual purpose when it was written. It was written as, here's some rules to help you. It's a code of ethics to live by, and here's a path to learn to worship God. They're mentioned twice in Scripture. First, in, well, they're mentioned more than that, but they're actually written out twice in Scripture. Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. I would encourage you to read both of those passages. Again, that's Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, because I'm going to be speaking on them for the next over two months. In fact, we've got one Sunday I'm going to be gone for my daughter's graduation, and we'll have a guest speaker, and uh, they'll even be continuing our series on the Ten Commandments. Um, some of you may say, especially if you're a historian, I've heard that Hammurabi's code is actually the Ten Commandments and that that's what the Ten Commandments were based on. Well, there is that discussion because Hammurabi's code is an ancient, uh, it's a giant piece of metal that's actually designed to look like a pointer finger, pointing, in case you didn't know it, it actually even has a little spot where the nail's carved out and everything. It's supposed to be a, a pointer finger. It's made out of metal and it was found in 1901. It was written sometime in uh, the 1700 BC, and it's, it closely aligns, and many people believe it came first because our oldest written documents by Moses are translated and retranslated and retranslated, but Moses' actual writings took place thousands of years before Hammurabi's code. So the idea that Moses stole from him doesn't really add up, and yet I understand what they're saying, that some later author who added to what Moses had written, and again, if this is going to blow your mind or ruin your faith, I'm sorry, but we know for sure that people added to Moses' writings that are uncredited authors. We know that because there's things that are written in the margins that we actually include in the scripture, and also the part in Deuteronomy where it talks about Moses being the most humble man who ever lived. If you're the most humble man who ever lived, you don't write that. So we know somebody added that later. That's okay. Because it doesn't make it any less the reality of what God is saying. Okay? We closed the book on what God was saying, not because God says, I'm done speaking to people. We closed it because we had to at some point say, this is what we can agree on as a historical document. These are the words of God. But nowhere does it say, these are the only words of God. Now, I do not believe that there are modern day uh, people who are getting biblical things given by God, but I do believe that there's writings today that God has inspired people to write that are significant. There's a difference. There's something about the text that the holiness of the text comes 
because of the way it was constructed and the way that it came together. And yet God, I still believe, speaks to people today. But nothing that he's telling anyone today is going to contradict anything that he told people in the past. So when people come up with this new revelation that they're actually the second son of God, that's not true. The whole David Koresh or others who have come after and say, I am Jesus reincarnated. I am another son of God. I am another prophet sent and I am the true prophet. Those things contradict scripture. So we can automatically say that's not accurate. But to say that God's not speaking anymore says that God's not active in the world. And I don't believe that. I believe God is active in your life and my life today, which means he has to still be speaking to us through his Holy Spirit. So that's the difference. It's a subtle difference, but people will either say, nope, you can't have anything that God is not speaking today because the Bible's closed, or you have people who go, well, anything that anybody says is from God could be from God. No, neither of those is true. All right? Now, I know that that's controversial, but I also have met people who have written things that they genuinely believe, and maybe it did, was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and they believe should be added to Scripture, and I would always say no. Scripture is closed, the message is complete, but it's ongoing and active and working in our life just as God is. So I want to say that up front so that later on when I say something, you don't go, but wait, okay? So now we're all on the same page as to where I'm coming from. And if you disagree with me, that's fine. God bless you. You're allowed to believe what you want. I'm telling you, as I understand Scripture, it's a living, breathing thing but it doesn't mean we're adding to it. Now here's, um, once we get away from the idea of is the Ten Commandments really part of Hammurabi's code, all of which are contained in there, but all of which were written, posted onto this steel thing years later, and there are hundreds of laws. There's laws on what to do and the punishments that go with it on this code, which you can actually, they have a cop, the originals in the Louvre but there's about a dozen copies that have been made that are in museums around the world. So if you ever want to see one, there's a couple in the U.S. I believe there's even one in New York. Um, so you can actually see what was written there. And we don't have the Ten Commandments. The stone tablets no longer are known to exist. But it doesn't make them any less reality. The numbering system is different among various religious traditions. So just so you know, we're going to look at this more as we go because commandment number one, as we see it, and commandment number one, as the Jewish culture sees it, are different. If you grew up in the Lutheran tradition, the numbering system is slightly different than the Catholic tradition. Not the words, but the way what they lump together. The way that they view the coveting part. Is that one commandment? or three commandments. It depends on which tradition you're from. The very first part, is it one, thou shalt have no other gods before me, and graven images? Is that one commandment or two? We're going to talk a little bit about that. However you want to break it down, whatever tradition you're most comfortable with, whatever you grew up with is fine. Here's what's important, that you know what the words say, that you know how it applies to your life as an individual, and three, you know how to put it into practice to live the life that God has called us to live. Because if we don't put any of this into practice, if all it is is head knowledge, then it does nobody any good. But it's when we begin to allow our life to be shaped, our ethics to be shaped, the fact that we worship God to be shaped by it, 
then it begins to be alive and breathing, just as any other passage of Scripture. So what are the commandments really about? Um, as I mentioned before, they're a code of ethics and worship to guide us for our life. They are not just a set of rules. Too many people say, we need to have those up in the courthouse in, across America. That would be great. But there's other great things we could have in courthouses. You know what's more important to me? That we begin to see it, understand it, and we begin to live it out. Because that's what God's called us to do. I never expect somebody who isn't a believer to understand why I live the way I do. I also don't understand a three-year-old to like, be able to do trigonometry. There's this old show, King of the Hill. I don't know if you ever watched it. It's an animated show. It's my favorite animated show of all time. It's about a guy who lives in Texas, and he has a little boy named Bobby. And Bobby is, you know, he's a little on the dim side, and his father doesn't know what to do with him, but he really genuinely loves his son. And there was an episode recently, I'm watching it now with my son because he didn't get to experience the beauty of it. And, uh, and we're watching it together, and there's an episode where little Bobby meets a gifted girl, and she goes, oh, I'm in trigonometry. And, and he goes, oh, my book just says, he goes, I'm in math. My book just says math. I don't expect a first grader to be able to do trigonometry or a five-year-old. However, somewhere along the way, I learned to do it. I can't tell you when I learned, but what I can tell you is that I know and that I understand how to do it. And so there's certain things that can't be comprehended when you're one age that can later on. I'm not an engineer, but my father-in-law is. And I was helping him clean out his storage unit a couple years back. He was with General Electric for years, and he had these giant three storage units just filled with paperwork for projects that had gone back 16 years. And these things were 10 by 30 and just filled with, well, they, he had them lined with shelves and they were filled with boxes. And we're loading up these boxes and we literally had the FedEx truck come there and we're putting, I'm helping tape up the boxes, put shipping labels on them. Tape them up, shipping label. Hundreds, literally hundreds of boxes. We filled a FedEx truck so much so that we had extras that he had to the next day have another truck come to ship more. And then we're talking a big, like bread-sized FedEx truck that they stacked floor to ceiling with boxes. And I would look at these things and it's just numbers and manuals and stuff I can't understand. And I, I remember at one point going, do they really need this stuff? He goes, I don't know, but I'm never gonna be accused of keeping their information. All right, let's load it up and ship it off. I said, will anybody ever look through it? And he looks and honestly goes, no, nah, they'll just shred it all eventually. He wrote, he coded, he did these things. He understood it. I didn't. He can't expect me to go onto a ship and figure out the computer systems and the wiring systems, which is what all of this was, schematics for Navy ships. I can't go on and figure out how to do it, even if I have the manual in front of me, because I don't understand the words. I can't expect people who don't know Jesus to ever live by my moral code. And when I do, I'm either angry or disappointed. That's what happens. But you know what I can do? I can live in such a way that sparks something in them that says, I don't know what it is about you, but I want that in my life. The people I work with at my job, the people I come in contact with around town, the people I have as friends and neighbors. I was talking with somebody about their neighbors before. I've been to their neighborhood. And when we were talking, I was asking about this neighborhood and that neighbor. And they were like, I got some strange neighbors. And I just said, we all do. 
We do. We all just have some strange, odd neighbors. People that are hard to get along with. Most of my neighbors I have a really good relationship with. But there's one lady, for whatever reason, that just doesn't like me. And I still can't figure it out. Which just, if you know me at all, I'm like, I am on a quest to be her best friend now. I could have just let it go as a nice little wave. But there's a lady who doesn't like me, and now I must know why. Other than the fact that my dog a couple times has wandered into her yard, which I've always gotten my dog right back out. There was never any incident where my dog went to the bathroom or in the yard. It's just like she runs in there and runs around under the fence, and then as soon as I call her, she comes running back. But why don't you like me? You know what? How do I love a neighbor that doesn't even like me for an unknown reason? I can't expect her to understand how I live my life, but I've got to live it in such a way that makes her want to know. It's not a set of rules. It's a guidelines for learning to live in community. That's really key to understand. He didn't give it to us, so there's a bunch of do's and don'ts and you're going to be in trouble. It's how do I live with the people on my left and my right? It was written to help Israel as they established a culture and a society. Okay? They are people without a land and they're about to go into a land that's occupied, but we have to learn now to connect and live amongst neighbors. They went from a people that were slaves to a people that are nomads to a people that are a society. And the rules for slaves are different than the rules for civilized society. Because slaves do what they're told when they're told, and you, you have choices and options as to how you're going to live and how you're going to love and what you're going to do. And every day, you, whether you realize it or not, you do certain things. I have one neighbor who doesn't like us to park in front of their house. I don't know why. I didn't do anything in front of their house. In fact, I don't think it was even me they were talking to about somebody else parking in front of their house. We have one neighbor with nine cars that tends to take up a lot of the street. There's times when I'm a little frustrated because you'll be driving down the street and they don't just double park in front of their driveway, they have the entire street blocked. And then you sit there and then finally somebody wanders out and goes, oh, I'll move that car. Thank you, thank you very much. And so they came over to let me know about people parking in front of their house and I said, I, I'm really sorry if I've done that, I don't think I have. And they go, oh, I don't think you have either. But we all know who has and he points his thumb towards that person. That's maybe my second or third conversation with this neighbor ever. You'd think it would be about the ball game or something. No, it's about what bothers them. Society has certain rules. We have to learn to live within them. But we as a people, it's not about whether or not I follow all the HOA rules. It's about whether or not I'm a good neighbor. So why does this matter? It's given to the people so they have this basic idea of how to function together. If we've got to live together, we have to know how to function together. It gave them foundation and outline for behavior within a group, within a subcontext, within just the greater idea of being in community. Within our own faith community here, we have things that we do. You know, some people say, oh, um, you know, the modern church, you guys don't really have a liturgy, do you? Because we don't do set readings and that kind of thing. And I'm like, oh yeah, we have a liturgy. People that have been here for any amount of time can tell you almost exactly what happens. We come in, I flash the lights somewhere between five minutes and one minute before we start in the lobby. We walk in here, we take a seat, we do two songs, then what do we do? We do welcome, greeting, announcements. Then we do three more songs, 
and then I get up and say a prayer. Then I speak some words, and then at the very end I say a prayer, and then I give you some type of informational output right before we go. That's our liturgy. Whether you realize it or not, that's how we have organized and formed our religious services. It's not the only way. I'm not saying it's the best way. I'm saying it's a way that for us functions and flows. So we've learned how we function and flow. You might have been to another church where they do it differently, where they do a reading or they do a a common prayer together or they do something else. They do eight songs. They worship for 45 minutes um, and they don't have a message. If you ever a Quaker background, you, at some point, you split in up by genders, and you read the scripture, and different people took turns sharing. That's not wrong. This is not what we do. It's just different. For us, we've learned. And so, the Ten Commandments isn't necessarily saying, you're all wrong if you don't do it my way, but it's saying, for us to function as a group who are followers of God, this is how we have to live. Don't expect the other people that are already in the promised land to live like you and know that there's going to be conflicts. We've learned to function together. So here's why this still matters to our life today. Number one, all groups need standards. Our society needs standards. If you belong to the Boy Scouts, there's certain rules. If you're in the Little League, there's certain guidelines on how we root for things and how we never boo and we only cheer and we don't argue with the umpire and all these things that didn't exist when I was in Little League that exist now. There's all these other guidelines that have been put together in any organization or group. And you may not even think about it. It may just be so much how you function. Maybe it's even your job. You get to the job, you go in, you punch in or clock in. At a certain time, everybody meets for their coffee break. You know, a lot of work, places they don't even know coffee break time you just look at your clock and go, oh time to get up you walk down there and there's already four five six seven people standing around having their coffee and then somebody at some point goes oh better get back to it and everybody just gets up and follows that person we learn to function in the society we have to have standards in order for that to happen we have to follow the scripture because It's not okay to say the Old Testament was then and I'm free from all of that now. When we do that, when we pick and choose just what I'm going to follow, then we're not really following the law of God. We're following what we want. Now, here's where I'm going to get really controversial. We still need wisdom to understand how to apply and interpret Scripture. Because whether you realize it or not, Every time you read the scripture, every time you listen to somebody speak the scripture, you either agree or disagree. And it's oftentimes based on how you were raised, where you were raised, what faith traditions you had. So you read these things and you go, and I've had people go, I don't like it when people interpret scripture for me. And my go-to is always like, okay, I'll get you the original Hebrew, read it and determine it for yourself. And even if you read Hebrew, you and the other Hebrew scholar are going to come up with different things that this means. Everybody's interpreting scripture all the time and you're reading it. You're interpreting it through a lens of every experience you've had, good or bad. And so when people say, well, I don't believe women should be in ministry because of these verses that Paul mentions, I oftentimes go, you realize those are situational verses that 
Paul wrote to a specific church at a specific time. And then they'll go, oh no, I take all scripture. I'm like, oh really? Because right now, if I'm not mistaken, you're wearing linens and cotton that are mixed. We got to cast you out and throw, throw stones at you. Let's go. I love throwing rocks at people. No, we determine what we're going to continue to follow. You ever eat a cheeseburger? Anybody? You bunch of sinners. You can't eat beef and cheese together. Violates the code. Okay, so some of it, we say, well, no, that was for then, and this is for now, and this is okay, and we all make our determinations. And I'm not saying we have no standards. We have to. But what I am saying is maybe you shouldn't be quite so hard line on what you're saying is okay and then saying everybody else is wrong. Because maybe, just maybe, yours is not the thing that God is focusing on. Or maybe in your life, God wants to focus on something else. Because when you start reading the Old Testament, there's all kinds of laws about if you have a gray hair that's coming out of your chin, there's something you have to do about it. Did you know that? There is. If you have a mole that has hair, there's laws regarding it. There's laws about when you can take your donkey out of a pit. So all of you donkey owners, better know that I'm watching you. But the truth is, we interpret this whether you think so or not. And so you were raised with this thing, and every experience you've had has determined and shaped. And it's not that we don't have standards. It's that I cannot possibly be telling the rest of the world to live up to what I do. Because if I'm evolving and growing in Jesus the way I'm supposed to, then I'm not the same person I was five years ago and ten years ago. And I can promise you, I'm not. It doesn't mean because we disagree with something that we throw it all out. Sometimes the Word of God, it doesn't contradict itself, but it, it forces us to get in there and to understand what's being said. It was written over thousands of years, literally, by multiple different writers, and it came together to tell the story of redemption. It's written so that we can understand who God is and how to have salvation through his son, Jesus. But when you're looking for it to align with this or that, we're asking it the wrong questions. Failing to understand the text leaves us with, quest with the wrong questions. When we begin to understand the text, it's not about, really, it's not about history. It is a historical book. It's not about science, although there are scientific things in there. It's not about a lot of the things we try to make it out to be. What it is about is a story of redemption. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17, tells us this. This is Jesus' word speaking. He says, Do not think that I come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of these commandments and teaches men, so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does not and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. He's telling them, you've got to stop believing. It's about doing this and not doing that. And yet we don't throw out the whole law. You have to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. They were the rule keepers. They were the ones monitoring. They were the ones reporting to the temple when they saw you do something wrong. They were a bunch of tattletales waiting for you to screw up. What's ironic is that's how many people see God. They're, they view this idea of God as just waiting for people to screw up. And here's the Son of God saying, don't be like them. God's not out to get you. They are. They are out to get you. If you do it wrong in front of them, and those people still exist today, they have all the right religious words, maybe even a religious spirit, but not a heart that's about love and about unity. So they divide the church, and they say only these groups, and then they subdivide, and then they keep dividing to make sure that it's smaller and smaller and smaller until only those who believe my theology are going to make it. And you've got to buy into what I'm selling. That's a dangerous place to be. I've told him before, when any leader tells you they're the one true leader, run from them. When any church tells you we're the only church, run from them. Because that's not what it tells us in Scripture. Now, should you be involved and submitted to a church? Absolutely. Should we connect deeply with the people on our left and our right? Yes, because that's how we come to know God. And we should exist in community, and you should be submitted to people. But submitted does not mean under mind brainwashing of people. It's a difference. And you should say, I'm committed to our church. I'm going to give of myself and my time and my energy and my money because I believe in what we're doing. But that doesn't mean there's never a point at which you don't have to question it either. So here's what I want you to, just our conclusions as we walk away today. Because I know the Ten Commandments could be a, you know, a three-unit college course that takes 15 weeks and three hours a week to go over. I understand that. You've got so much history I can't go into, so many other things I can't go into. We're not going to know every detail, but we're going to learn to understand what it is. Oh, got a little visitor. So, does this apply to me, and does this apply to me today? Like where I'm living in this century, in America, in my home, does this apply to me? I would say yes, but you've got to ask yourself that question. And I wouldn't just ask the question, I would look for, how does this apply to me? And some of you might be asking, well, why should I allow a text written thousands of years ago to dictate my life today? I'm not asking for it to dictate your life, but what I am saying is there's things in here that will help you understand how to better function in the world we live in today. Can people still live up to these standards today? I think they can, but I don't think it's easy. Others may be thinking, you know, I'm a pretty good person, Jeff. Why, why do I need this? Because being good is a deception. Because when we start believing we're good, we no longer believe we have to have relationship with who he is. Because if I'm good enough, then what does it matter? You know what? You as a person 
are wonderful and beautiful and amazing and incredible because that's who God created you to be. And I don't want you to walk through life believing you're worthless and you're dirt. But all those things don't mean that in your spirit you're okay. If you ask me, you're incredible. And I tell teenagers all the time, stop believing what the world tells you. You are beautiful. You do matter. You're incredible. You're gifted. But that doesn't make you okay. You're still broken inside. Because we all are. And what God wants to do is he wants to use this to help you. Not so that you feel better about yourself but so that you connect with him in a real and significant way. Because you're already beautiful. You're already incredible. But you're still not okay. Father God, I thank you for this day, and I thank you that your love and your grace extends to us even in our short-sightedness and our blindness and the things we don't see. Help us to understand you more, to know you more, to connect with you deeper. Help us to be a people who are not just known by what we're against, but are known by the way we love and by our actions that back that up. In your name, amen. Every month we take time to do communion. We invite people to come and to remember. Last week we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus, and some of you are probably saying, we just celebrated his resurrection. Why are we already talking about his death again? Because it's our hope. His death and resurrection is our hope for something more. And this does not equal your salvation. This does not make you a member of this church. What this is, the significance of communion is this. You want to recognize who Jesus is and the fact that he did something in your life. And so I invite everybody to come. I mean, if there was a gathering of heathens of America and they invited me to come and say the prayer and serve communion I'd do it because I believe we all need to remember there was a sacrifice made for you so that you could be reconciled to God and I'm not saying I, I still have doubts guess what so did Thomas and he walked for three years with Jesus so did the other disciples they were hiding so Thomas gets all the blame but the others were still in hiding weren't they easier to point at one guy and say, it's all his fault than it is to say, I must not have really believed or wouldn't have been hiding. You're going to have doubts throughout life. Doubts aren't what defeat us. It's giving in to those doubts and stop pressing through. That's what leaves us defeated. I want to invite you today to come and take. You don't have to be a member. You don't have to be a certain gender, a certain age, a certain socioeconomic. This is for those who are the poorest among us, and this is for the richest person in here. This crosses all lines. One of the saddest things is, for years, and I mean hundreds of years, you could only take if you were of a certain level in the church. And they actually sat in different areas, and only certain people could take, and it was one of the greatest sins ever perpetrated by the church because of all the things the church should be about. It should be about welcoming and loving everybody no matter who they are or what they are, where they come from or what their background. People do things I don't agree with 
but I'll still serve in communion. Because that's us saying, we both recognize I'm just a broken person in need of a Savior. So in just a moment, they're going to dismiss for you guys to come up here. If you're unable to just emotionally or spiritually, you go, I don't feel worthy to come. I, I want you to know right now, none of us are worthy, but you're all welcome. But if you can't come up, just raise your hand. Amy's going to come. If it's because you physically can't, if it's just easier for you to have somebody come to you, Amy's going to come to you. And then after that, there'll be three of us up here after she's done serving those who, who, who can't come forward. Otherwise, come on, start making a line there. The other line, come on up. They'll dismiss you from the back to the front. Break off a piece, dip it in, and then make your way back to your seat.